0: Luke 2, 6 and 7, it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the big moment. This is the moment when time was split in two. This is the moment where Jesus is born. And we, in present day, Um, As we come and celebrate Christmas, we're kind of at the beginning of what's called Advent. And it's the celebration that we have as we get closer to the day we mark as Jesus' birthday, if you will. Um, And this is an expectant season. You know, typically held over those first four Sundays, that's kind of the Advent season, if you will. Um, But it's one that's marked with a sense of expectation and hope, much like a bride and a groom await their wedding day. Uh, you can look at this in contrast to the season of Lent, and Lent is really a season that's leading up to Jesus's death and resurrection. That season is marked with reflection, repentance, and fasting, so you kind of see how these two seasons, Advent and Lent, are, um, are contrasted against each other, and that's the season that we're in right now with Advent. We are in this kind of um, expectancy, waiting for this day, um, and I know that uh, some of you have Christmas traditions where you maybe have an advent calendar. Who has an advent calendar? Anybody? No, one person. Thank you, Sharon. Um, everyone else is challenged to go out and buy an advent calendar. Uh, no, you don't You don't have to do that. Everyone has those different traditions, those things that they do leading up to Christmas. And it seems like every one of those things that we do that leads up to Christmas, all those traditions, helps to grow that expectancy. It helps us to get more and more excited about the season that is to come, right? Like. With everything that you do, who's already put up their tree? Yeah, I got some. Most of everyone has put up their tree. Who's already put up their lights? I heard about the lights yesterday. Some folks put up the lights. Um, yeah, all of those things help us to build anticipation, help us to build excitement of the the event that is to come, which is Jesus's birth. And that's exactly where we are this morning, inside of Luke two six and seven. So we could have held this off. We could have said, you know what, this is. This verse is for the Christmas Eve service, okay? So we have to hold this. There's no sense in talking about it till then. So you know what? Let's just take a break in Luke. We'll come back. We'll pick this up later. As soon as we get to that point, we want to time this out just right. Um, guys, it's always good news when we could talk about Jesus' birth, right? right? We don't have to wait until December 25th to talk about this. We can talk about this every day of the year that we have a Savior that was born, right? And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to get right into it and talk about this awesome moment, this moment where time was split in two. So we're going to start by just going right back into Luke 2, 6 and trying to dig into the scripture here and get a little more context for what's going on. And it says, and while they were there, so let's pause, let's stop right there. While they were there, where is, where is there? And there is a little town called Bethlehem. And you might say, well, I know this song. I'm even saying about it. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Or however that goes. Um, you probably sing it much better than I do. But that town of Bethlehem um, was talked about all the way back in Micah. And Micah, as you know, is an Old Testament book. And we see this, um, we see this talked about in Micah as a prophecy of where the Messiah would be born. So if you want to write this down or flip to, uh, flip to Micah, it's Micah 5, 2 through 5. And it says, But you, O Bethlehem, I can't say that word, but E word, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give up until the time... When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they shall dwell secure. And now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. So we we can see this all the way back in the Old Testament that throughout time, throughout Scripture, this is a culminating moment. This is a moment that has been talked about, has been planned since the beginning of time. And Mike talked about that a little bit last week. He said that, you know, this was no surprise to God. He didn't, uh, none of this just kind of happened, happened stance that he didn't just one day wake up and say, as if God could wake up and say, because um, he never sleeps, just P.S. Just make sure you follow me there. Um, didn't just one day realize that he was going to Uh, create the son he was going to oh you know what probably should create a son probably should uh, uh, send him there to to be a sacrifice for everyone this was not something that was just done on a moment's notice and on a whim this has been the plan since the beginning of time you see there was actually a time for Jesus's birth there was a specific time and as it says, as we keep following into Luke 2, 6, it says, there came a time for her to give birth. Now, there is a physical time to give birth, right? If you're a mom or if you know a mom or if you had a mom, so that pretty much encapsulates everyone in the room, um, there was a physical time for you to be born, to give birth, or for your children to be born if you're, if you're dead. Like, there's a nine-month gestation period, takes nine months from conception to delivery for a baby to be born. And when it's time for baby to come out, it's time. Like there is a specific exact time. And some of those times um, come unexpectedly. Some of those times are planned, but but we know that within nine months, there there comes a time. Well, as they are traveling to Bethlehem, because Got to keep in mind, Joseph, Mary, they're not from Bethlehem. They were going back to Bethlehem for a census that was being taken. So they had to go back there to be counted in the census. At that time, that's when Mary was due to give birth. So see, you can even see there was a specific time that God's timing was perfect in this time. That it said back in Micah that the ruler, the, the one that, that shall be their peace, will be born in Bethlehem. So while there was, while there was this, uh, certainly all of this was in God's time, God's time was, he was able to orchestrate even a physical time for Mary to conceive, for Mary to, to uh, deliver. I mean, all of this has been within God's control and is totally orchestrated in his time. And there was a purposeful time for all of this. And it says here that She gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, you've got to keep in mind, very important, they say here that Jesus was her firstborn son, but not Mary's only son. We tend to sometimes within our culture, within certain religious groups, uh, think of Mary as a perpetual virgin, that she was always a virgin. But she wasn't. We have evidence here from Scripture that says that Jesus had brothers and sisters, four of them to be Exact. He had four brothers, and it says sisters, although it doesn't name the sisters in Scripture. uh, But by the fact that it's plural, we know that he had more than one. Uh, But this, while it was Mary's firstborn, she had other kids. It was the only of her children who was the son of God. Okay, so we're talking about a very specific... um, distinction here that's given to Jesus, that he is the firstborn, the first one that she had, so we know that there were many, um, but this one was different. This child of hers was different. This was to be the son of God, and as we move a little further into the text, it says that she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Now, Back then, they didn't have, like, Travelocity. They didn't have Expedia. There wasn't, like, a you know, too many, so many rooms left. They didn't, when they were traveling to Bethlehem, a lot of times, it wasn't unusual in this day for people to welcome others into their homes and just stay there. So, um, it's a little contested in Scripture as to whether this is an inn, like, you know, one of those, like a Microtel or Motel 6, um, a, a place that was set up specifically to house visitors and travelers, or if it was just a place where people went when they came to town, if it was someone's house. At, but what we do know is they didn't stay in a bedroom. They didn't stay in someone's room. There was no place for them in the end because we know from this text that Jesus was placed in a manger. A manger is not a thing that you, that you keep in your guest's spare bedroom. All right, This is a thing that's used for feeding animals. So we know that that's where they are. They're in a place where animals are. So it could have been... In someone's house in this in this day uh, some scholars believe that it could have been on a lower level of their house where the animals are kept um, but either way this is not like the children's wing at Methodist Hospital okay we have to really kind of put this all in context uh, for the type of condition that this birth is happening it says here because there was no place for them in that inn he was laid in a manger and I don't know about you I mean I've I've Watched. I've witnessed three births, and um, a manger is not a thing that I would have wanted to put my children in. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. And I think it's really fitting. We've been talking about one of the resources we pointed uh, you all to as we've been going through Luke has been a meal with Jesus or meals with Jesus. And um, even in this moment, in the moment of his birth, you see symbolism in him being in a a feeding trough. That he was placed into a place where those that are the the lowest of the low, the animals, are getting their food, they're getting their their nourishment. And he would come for the least of these. He would come for us. He would come to rescue us. And he's being placed in in this manger, this feeding trough, and we would see throughout his life that meals, that food would become essential to his ministry. Now, he even uses that imagery of food to explain himself in John six, forty-eight through 51. And when he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. And in Jesus' last supper with the disciples, it's recounted in Matthew 26, verses 26 and 28. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he had gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. So we see this imagery throughout Jesus' life from the very moment that he is born of food. And I don't know about you guys, but like come about 1130, my stomach starts to grumble. Anybody else here with me like just ready for food? We come to the communion table. You're like wondering if it's okay to get an extra piece of bread. (laughs) Anybody else like you're looking for the biggest piece of bread? You're like you're so, 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 so hungry uh, by the time we get to that point in the service. Um, Food is something that we need is something that we need to, to sustain life, right? And that's what Jesus is giving us the imagery of here when he goes all the way back and talks about the bread of life, or uh, the bread, rather, the manna that, that fell in the wilderness. You know, he's talking about um, a bread that did, at one time, fall from heaven and feed people. Like, it was real bread that fell from heaven and fed people. And he's saying that those who ate on that bread, they died i mean it was it was just food it was just bread and that's the kind of food that we physically eat on a day-to-day basis we eat food that sustains our life here but jesus is saying that he is the living bread that he is the living bread that came down from heaven and if anyone eats of the bread he will live forever that's what jesus is telling us about his life he's saying that our, our lives here are going to, our physical lives are going to come and go. They're going to pass. But the way we get eternal life is through him. It's through his sacrifice. It's through him and him alone. And this is the moment that things really got real. These two verses, Luke 2, 6, and 7, are when things got real. And the Message Bible interprets this moment very eloquently uh, in John 1:14, 14. It says, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's kind of cool, right? The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This, again, moment was not a surprise to God. This has been his plan since the beginning of time. In John 1:1. You go back there, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not, made, was not anything made that was made. That Jesus has been the word that is described here in John. Jesus has been with God since the beginning. That all of creation was made through him. That's big to think about, right? It's big to think that while we think of Jesus entering the earth and 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 taking on form in this moment in Luke 2, 6 and 7, that he has been with God, the Father, since the beginning of time, since before there was time. So we have a we have a Savior who wasn't just didn't just come into existence. 2,000 years ago, but we have a Savior that has always been the plan and has been in existence since before time began. That's the kind of Savior that we have. And this is an amazing moment here where he is actually, as they say, as is said here in John 1, 14, he became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And Matthew's Gospel recounts an angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph. So this is Joseph, Jesus' Father here on earth. And he reminded him of Isaiah. And Isaiah is another Old Testament book. It says here in Isaiah 7.14. The Lord inspired Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14 to say, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall come, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew is telling that to Joseph. In Matthew's gospel, he is reiterating what's said in Isaiah 7.14. And that verse, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So when Joseph hears this and knows this, he knows that verse. right? Joseph understands what this verse means and he understands what Emmanuel means. And Emmanuel simply means God with us. So they would know in that moment, Emmanuel, God with us, that this would not just be another baby. This would not just be an ordinary pregnancy. That this would be God putting on flesh and blood and moving into the neighborhood. See, this is the moment that things got real. And we've got to make Jesus real to us. He must become real to us. Are we stuck in a historical view of Jesus? Is he still six pound, eight ounce, baby Jesus to you? Is he still laying in the manger? When you think of Jesus, when Jesus comes to mind to you, what is that view? Is it this historical view of Jesus? Is he on the cross? When you think of Jesus, is he he still there in your mind? When you think about him is he in the tomb or is he just stuck really in antiquity or are we stuck in a fictional view of Jesus right because we can we can find plenty of places where Jesus is in our culture plenty of of images of him Um, is he in a velvet painting in your mom's living room is he Jim Caviezel is that the view of Jesus that we get when we think of Jesus And Jim Caviezel, the actor from The Passion of the Christ, um, just so you guys know. (laughs) Spoiler alert, it's not him. Um, But is that the vision that we get? Do we get this vision of movies and we get this vision of, of really a shadow, a portrait, a display of Jesus when we think about him? Because if we do, if that's where we are, if we never get any further than that, Jesus is not going to become real to us. He never will be. He'll always just be in media. And that's where he'll stay. He'll be stuck there. So when you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? Is he someone that you think of in history? Is he someone that you think of from from stories of the Bible? And let me tell you, I'm not discounting or discrediting that. This book tells us everything we need to know about Jesus. It is, it is what we need. And we're going to talk more about that later in the sermon, about why this is so important. Is Jesus one of those who, when he comes to your mind, you, you think of um, some film. And maybe it's the new um, story that's been on the History Channel. I think it was. The, they released that in the movies recently this year, too, where it was about movies about Jesus. Is that where he is for you? Because if that's all he is to you, if he is someone who resides inside of a story, if he's someone who resides inside of a movie or in a velvet painting in your mom's or your grandmom's uh, living room, he's never going to become real to you. He's never going to become real to you. See, in order for Jesus to become real to us, for us to really grasp Luke 2, 6, and 7, we've got to move into relationship. We've got to move away from these stories and these images of Jesus and move into relationship with him, with him and with others. And we're going to do that in four ways. First of which is being in the word. So why? Why do we, why do we pick up this book and why do we read it regularly? Why is it something that we we preach from on Sunday morning. Why is it something that has to even move beyond Sunday morning and become a part of your daily life? Well, simply because God wants it to. And in Romans 15:4, it says, For whatever was, in, was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we see four things there in Romans 15 verse 4, on reasons why this is so important to us. It's written for our instruction. This is helpful. Alright, who who believes that this is helpful? I mean, first and foremost, it's instruction. Guys, I'm like, I don't know about you, but usually when I get something at the house, something to unpack and put together, which might happen more and more as the weeks go by, um, soon, catch my drift, um, As I get those boxes and unpack those boxes, I used to throw the instructions, right? I'm like, man, I can figure this out on my own. There's nuts and bolts and other things. I'll put them together until they match up and line up accordingly to the picture. Like, I could do, I totally have this, right? And we could do that with life, too. We could say, you know what? I am... Woman, man, I'm here, I'm there. I I see the things before me, and I can take care of this all on my own. I can do it. The truth is we need instruction. We need instruction. And we do get instruction from the Holy Spirit. We do get instruction from, from God outside of this book. But this is the best use of instruction. This is like an instruction manual for life. And if we don't get into the word, how's the word going to get into us? How's the word gonna, going to shape and affect our lives where we can, we can learn from this book? Now, honestly, I used to be in a place where I thought this book was written by man. There's, you know, because it's written by man, man's a mess up. I'll keep it clean this morning. Man is not perfect, so how... In the world, could this possibly be a perfect book? Right? Then it came to mind that God's pretty powerful. Amen? Y'all look out that window. If you can look out the window. I tell you what, look to the person next to you. You're looking at miracles. You're looking at creation. You are looking at God's creation. A God that is powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth, every animal, every water, every tree, every plant, every everything, including the person next to you, is a powerful God. Are we going to limit His power here and say He's not perfect, He's not capable of making a perfect book for us too? We can't limit His authority and say, well, this isn't this isn't accurate. This is the infallible word of God. This is Holy Spirit inspired. This is everything we need to know about him on earth. It's all right here. And we have the opportunity. We, we sit in a culture right now of luxury that we have this book written about 600 different ways that there's the Message Bible, there's the Voice Bible, there's the ESV, the NLV, the NIV. We have it written in so many different ways. And you can come up to that and say, well, the words are different, so how can it be perfect? How can it be that my Bible that's an ESV and hers that's NIV and it says, you know, things that are a little bit different? We can get stuck there and say well, I don't know that I can put my faith in something that changes like that, that changes that much. And we have to trust in a perfect God that allows His message to be communicated in different ways to people. That the message stays the same. And thanks to the tireless efforts of biblical scholars that have gone through and have made sure that this word is perfect. And I'll just tell you, if you're If you're reading a version of the text and you have not looked into how that text was written, how that text was put together, you should probably check it out. You should probably take a look at it and make sure that the text that you're reading is the text that has gone through and has been looked at by scholars and by theologians and by those who are striving towards biblical accuracy that have been written from the, from the text. But we believe in a God that, that can make a perfect book, that can make an instruction manual for us. And this is what we have to live by. This is what we, why we have to be in God's word. And when we get into God's word, it gets into us. In Isaiah 55:11, it says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That when we read God's word when we get into God's word, when God's word is proclaimed, that's why we say on Sunday mornings, um, you'll hear me after a service say, we heard this this morning, what are we going to do about it? Because God's word does not return void. It does not go out and not accomplish anything. It changes us. It forever changes us. And no matter if we come up against the same verse over and over again, John 3.16, probably one of the most quoted and memorized verses of all time, that throughout our life, that verse, God is going to use that verse to speak to us. He's going to use it to to shape us, to mold us. He's going to reveal more of himself to us every single time we come across those verses. It moves us and it shapes us. And one of the things we're going to be focusing on in the coming year um, is our REAP journals. We have those there in the back Um, and all this is is a way for us to get in a spiritual discipline of getting in God's word on a daily basis and we're going to be encouraging that. We are going to be um, as Daniel, Mike, and I we we are going to be committed to doing that as well because I'll be honest there are days I go without reading God's word Honestly, just as one of your pastors, I want to be real with you. Um, I want to be more committed to that. And not because like like a workout regime, it's something that I can do to make myself better. I want to know God more. I want to know him better. That he's there, he gives me the access to know more about him, and it's right here. And sometimes it's just creating some some muscle memory, if you will. You guys familiar with what muscle memory is? Maybe you've been driving your car, and you get to thinking about something, and all of a sudden your car is driving itself home. Like, for you just don't even think about it. You have this, you have this muscle memory, this 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 part of you that becomes, um, it becomes kind of like a reflex, like your like almost like your heart beating. Like you don't have to tell your heart to beat; it's just gonna do it. Right? It's gonna keep going. It's the same thing with with creating spiritual disciplines. That spiritual disciplines sometimes start off as something that we have to put on our calendar and set our clocks for and be very intentional about. But over time, it becomes muscle memory. It becomes something that we want to do, something that we we yearn to do, that when we wake in the morning, we want to be doing those things. We wanna be in prayer. We wanna be in God's word. And that's why we are gonna focus in 2015 starting on January 1 and getting into God's word. We're going to be doing that through the Reap Journal. We've got a few of those in the back. Uh, it's a resource that the Austin Stone and Austin put together, um, and it gives us a few different verses every day. And um, I'm going to – can you grab one of those real quick, Kendall? Um, I think they, they've been back there. We've, we've asked for about, I think, $10 maybe There's a su- suggested – Uh, Donation for those books because that's how much they cost us when when we go out to buy them. Um, But they're a a little thin book. It's um, one that has the verses uh, written in them so you'll need a Bible to accompany it. But um, it has places in here where you can write down your notes and the word REAP is actually an acronym and it says so right here read, examine, apply, and pray. And that's something that you would do every day when you get into the Word, that you would read it, that you would examine it, you'd spend some time reflecting, you would apply it to, apply that text to your own life and asking questions um, after you've read and examined, and then that you would pray, that you would pray through the passage and your application, asking God to change your heart and to change your life based on the time that you've spent in God's Word. It's a really great resource. You could do those things without this resource, too. Okay, so if you'd rather do it on your own at your own pace, by all means. Uh, but we want to make this resource available to you. So that's one of the ways that Jesus can become real to us as we move into relationship with Him by just knowing more about Him. We're gonna, as you read God's Word, as this Word unfolds, and you you read about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. We've already had this morning. We've gone to Micah. We've gone to Isaiah. We're seeing, we're seeing Jesus show up in the Old Testament. He's, he is represented through other characters throughout text. You're going to learn more about him. And through learning more about him, that relationship gets built. But the other way that we are going to, um, to be focusing on this in 2015, both personally and corporately, um, will be in prayer. So, why? why? Why do we need to be in prayer? Because Jesus prayed. Okay, we want to be more, we want to know more about Jesus, be more like Jesus. Jesus prayed. And in Hebrews 5 through 7, it said, or Hebrews uh, 5, verse 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Prayer simply is an act of submission. I mean, even if you look at the way people give images of prayer, what are we doing? Like a lot of times, right? It's, it's a head bowed, right? This is a sign of submission. When we do this, being on your knees is a sign of submission to someone, to something. And we do that through prayer. But it's not just about speaking. It's about listening. In Isaiah 55, verses 2 and 3, it says, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul might live. We've got to be ready to listen in prayer too. And I I may have... uh, told this illustration once before, but I heard a pastor say one time that, um, you know, when we come to the Lord in prayer and it's just a laundry list of things that we, that we want, um, that ain't such a bad thing, okay? Because if you come to the Father asking, you're believing that he's got the power to do it, okay? That is recognizing that God is who he says he is, has the power to do what he says he will do. Now, of course, those prayers need to evolve. They need to uh, develop over time. Prayer life, just like a life uh, and reading Scripture, will develop, will mature over time. That you will um, start to work in things like um, listening and not just asking all the time. And the things that we ask for will even change. The way that we position those things, the way that we position ourselves in prayer will grow and develop. But even that has to start someplace, right? We have to begin a discipline in prayer life. So we've talked about being in the word. We've talked about being in prayer as a way for us to grow a relationship with Jesus and have him become real to us, have him move from history and move from this place where we think of him historically or or through, through literature or mass media But the third is this, being in discipleship. We actually get to know about Jesus more through discipleship. And in the book Total Church, uh, which is another book I would recommend to you guys, Steve uh, Timmis and, and Tim Chester wrote this book, and they explain how they've learned the importance of modeling through their own personal experience. And it says in the book here, People should learn the truth of justification not only in an exposition of Romans 5, but as they see us resting on Christ's finished work instead of anxiously trying to justify ourselves. They should understand the nature of Christian hope not only as they listen to a talk about Romans 8, but as they see us groaning in response to suffering as we wait for glory. We have found in our context that most learning and training takes place not through program teaching or training courses, but in unplanned conversations, talking about life, talking about ministry, talking about problems. And that's really what discipleship looks like. The life of a disciple is better caught than it is taught. And that's why we've chosen... That's why... Not even, let I me mean, back up. That's why we feel God has chosen us to lead a ministry like this. To lead a ministry where we look at the ordinary moments of our everyday life, like sharing a meal with one another, like being around a campfire, going out and playing mini golf. Those ordinary moments, those ordinary moments, Opportunities of life, those unplanned conversations, are when we start to grow and develop each other through discipleship. Becoming a disciple, it's so many different things, right? It's, it's God's word, it's our worship. All of those things help us to make disciples who make disciples. But as they said here in Total church, it's the way that we see each other groaning in a response to suffering, as we wait for glory. It's the way that we respond, to those ordinary moments. And as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, God uses those ordinary moments and the ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And when we're in discipleship with one another, when we're in community with one another, we get to see that. We get to do that. And I want to pause right here and just say um, something that needs to be said because it's my responsibility as a pastor, one of your pastors, to say it. Sunday mornings are not only for you, and they're not only for me. If my attitude as I come to church is what am I going to get out of Sunday morning? Is it going to be good for me? Is it going to be good for my time? Is it going to fit into my schedule to come and to sit in a chair for an hour, hour and a half, depending on how long-winded we are? Is it only for me? Because if we come into this place Every Sunday, and it's only for us, we're coming in with the wrong heart. That if we actually looked at this as though me coming into church and sharing life with other people, the people who are sitting next to you, behind you, and in front of you, is more about serving them, then that muscle memory might happen more often too. And that we would create in this regular routine of not just just having church be for us and don't get me wrong, you will, God will move you and change you and shape you through the word, through worship, through those things, you will benefit from being here on Sunday mornings, no doubt. He created us as a people for this, for, for the corporate worship, for us to be a place, a perfect place for imperfect people where people could come outside to inside, get to know the family, and, and through that, through this gathering, get to know our God that we serve and we love so much. But if you're not here, and I mean you, not the person next to you, but if you're not here, you are robbing your brother or your sister from knowing more about God, because they're going to see that through you. They're going to be discipled by you, and you're going to be discipled by them. And as we do this thing called life with one another, as we see each other groaning and, and and we, and we grieve for them as we wait for glory, as, as we see each other celebrating those amazing moments and see each other pointing each other back to the cross and saying, only by God's grace, only by God's grace can this happen. We are going to see and know our God more and more clearly. We don't do this Sunday morning gathering thing for ourselves. We don't do it to give ourselves a pat on the back. We don't do it to say that we can check one thing off of our list. We do it for each other. We do it to be as family. That's why we gather. It's a big reason why we gather. So we can do this corporately. Plus, I like you guys. I like to see you (laughs) from week to week. We do love each other. We we grow to love each other and to know each other. Um, I want there to be a week when the people that are sitting in this room and those who need to be in this room whose chairs are empty and for whatever reason they are that's fine but there's a sunday where you don't have to go up to someone in this room and ask their name we're we're as they say in church we're lc we're little church okay that is not an unrealistic expectation for us to know each other's names and it's okay to ask two three four times to keep asking that's fine i am admittedly not very good with names that's okay but even i want to be i want to be sure of your name i want to be certain that we know each other well and there one god willing there will be a day where this number of people in our church may be all the people i can know their names well if we grow to that to that if god grows us to that um, that number there may be that time but right now, we should know each other well. And we should call each other when we're not here. And we should pray with each other when we're sick. And we should rejoice with each other when we have reasons to rejoice. Basically just every day because every day is a gift, right? We've got air in our lungs. We should just call each other and rejoice every morning. Just start singing to each other. The morning people could call each other. Um, maybe... maybe. Get the phone number of a morning person and call and sing to each other, would you? But we've got to be in God's word. We've got to be in prayer. We've got to be in discipleship to be into that relationship with Jesus. And finally, we've got to be in the world. We've got to be an incarnational apologetic. And really those two words, incarnational, apologetic, I'm going to unpack for us real quick, too. So, kids, you can, you can kind of grasp a hold of what these words mean. But incarnational really just means that we take on flesh, right? That it's, we, we, it's something real, tangible. It's like us. We become a person, okay? A person. And apologetic is someone who gets to tell people about Jesus and talk about Jesus. So it's a person who talks about Jesus. Inca- incarnational, apologetic. Just that, that simple. And as we live out our lives devoted to Christ, people get to experience the love of Jesus through us. The way we sacrifice, the way we forgive, the way we provide, the way we rejoice, the way we mourn and the way we love. That we get to go, we have the privilege of doing that in our communities, in our workplaces, at school, on the soccer field, on the basketball court, all of those different places. We get to go out and be a person who is an ambassador for Christ and love people with gospel intentionality, sharing the good news with people, not in a way that is without relationship, um, but in a way that cares and loves one another. Now, I'm not saying you can't tell your Starbucks barista about Jesus. God opens that door by all means. Um, But in a way that, in the way that Jesus would, Right? In a way that Jesus would, would approach a stranger and share love, which would often look like through Scripture, it would look like the love first. It would look like Him meeting their felt needs, meeting needs like providing food, turning water into wine, right? He didn't have to get up and preach a sermon before He did that, He just did it. He loved them right where they were. And that's what it looks like for us to become an incarnational apologetic. And when God opens that door to talk about him, to talk about Jesus, to do so with boldness, to do so with certainty. And as you start to study that big word apologetics, you can look online. There's a bunch of really great uh, theologians who look at apologetics, and there's lots of discussion about apologetics um, from Hank Hanegraaff and from Lee Strobel and, and other uh, folks like that, um, whether apologetics is out there defending the faith and, and going and, and basically having, I wouldn't say arguments, but debates about Jesus. Some people in this room are going to be equipped to do that. Jason, maybe. <laughs> He's ready to do that. He's ready to talk about that. That's not going to be everybody in this room. And that's okay. That is all right. You don't have to be that. God is going to equip people to do that. Don't feel like you have to be out there defending the faith in that way. You can defend the faith in small ways. Take someone a meal. Do something for someone that, that is, really looks like it's extraordinary. Meet their needs. Watch their kids. Watch their car. But do that with gospel intentionality, too. Do that out of a heart of love. Do that out of a, out of a heart of wanting to, to serve in the way that Jesus served. He washed his disciples' feet. I'm not asking you to wash anybody's feet. <laughs> Roxy actually washes feet, though. <laughs> Roxy could do that with gospel intentionality because she gives pedicures. That you can actually serve that way if you, if you want to. But those are the things that we do on an everyday basis, those ordinary moments like that, that we can serve people with gospel intentionality. When we do those things, when we get into the word, when we get into prayer, when we get into discipleship and and then just being in the world, Jesus will become real to us. That's where relationship starts. We've got to move Jesus from the manger is sitting on your front lawn, little plastic Jesus. We've got to get him from there in your mind and in my mind and being in a place where he's real. And that's our prayer this holiday season. And the, the band can come back up as we, as we close up today and, and, and close out. We're going to move into a time of communion. And in this time of communion, um, it's an opportunity for Jesus to be real to you and to me. It's a time for him to, for us to remember his real sacrifice for us. That he really came as a babe, laid in a manger, lived 30 plus years on this earth, died for us, rose again, and is still living today. And we get to be reminded of that through this time of communion. So I've asked a couple of folks to help prepare uh, communion for today, too. So if they could do that, I think I have uh, Gus and Roxy coming to the front. I've got, I don't have, I don't have Erica, uh, or Bernie and Eric, sorry, Eric. Uh, I don't have Bernie and Eric, uh, but Gene, Carmen, would you guys help us in the back? Awesome. Um, as we come into this time of communion, let us remember those things. Let us remember um, his sacrifice for us. And how he can become more and more real to us. During this holiday season. Let us pray. Father. We thank you for your son. We thank you that in this moment. Today. This is the moment when time is split in two. This is the moment when. When you sent your son. When you sent the one who has been created. Before time. The one whom through all things were created. You sent him to us in this very specific time. This wasn't a surprise to you. You've foretold this. You have given us notice of this throughout your word. And Father, we thank you for his sacrifice. It's so amazing to think about that his sacrifice was efficient for us all and sufficient for us all. That his sacrifice on the cross could could not only cover us individually but cover us corporately. It covers our sins, Lord. We thank you so much for his sacrifice and as we take the bread and as we take the wine and the juice, let us remember his sacrifice. Let us reflect on what that means to us and then spend time in worship rejoicing for a Savior King and the one who is the reason for this season and every season. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you guys come